0: We've covered a couple of parables so far, and and this morning we are going to cover a second parable that is a continuation, uh, that is a series of parables that's based on the same discussion that Jesus is having. And so if you joined us last week in person or online, then you may recall that the parable we discussed in Matthew chapter 21 was told by Jesus in response to a question that he received from the religious elite in Matthew 21. And this question that came from Israel's chief priests and elders was asked in verse 23 of chapter 21. If you would look look and turn your attention to verse 23 where it says this, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now the concern for them was, straightforward. Who do you think you are is is a more direct question that they're asking. Who do you think you are to come here and threaten our place and threaten our authority in the community? And why on earth should we listen to you? And so in response to that line of questioning, Jesus tells them a story and actually a series of stories. And this morning, we're turning our attention to the second story. If you want to hear about the first story, you can go back and check it out on YouTube or on on the app. But the first story was the one we dove into last week. One father who calls two sons to work in his vineyard. The first son responds to his father's call with defiance, I will not go. And it's a response that is shameful and brings embarrassment to the family. But because the father is gracious and patient, the willfully disobedient son is given time to return. And he does turn. He has a change of mind, the scripture says. It moves from open defiance to late, but honest, true, authentic obedience. On the other hand, there's another son. And that son, when the father calls him to the vineyard, he answers with the promise of obedience and says, yes, father, I will go. But his response is more flattery than substance because he never actually goes. And when Jesus turns our attention to the meaning of the parable, it is pretty obvious that the, that, that the meaning, which is the one who flatters with words of obedience but lacks real commitment is the religious elite who pose and pretend to be about God's will and be about God's glory, but really are about their own power and their own glory. But the other son are the ones who are not just disobedient early, but scandalously uh, disobedient. But through the disobedience, they eventually, and also through the patience of God, they eventually have a change of heart. And as a, as, as a result of that change of heart, they turn to God. And so even though they were disobedient early, they turn to God and God embraces them. Like I said, we can talk about, oh, you can listen more on that by just grabbing the app or going to, going to YouTube and you can listen, more, listen to more of that sermon. But basically, what Jesus is saying is that you're not concerned with my authority because you're trying to please God. You're concerned with my authority because you're trying to preserve your own power and your own glory. And that's kind of like the first indictment that Jesus makes. Now he's gonna tell a second story and that second story is going to present another indictment. And so that second story begins in verse 33. Here another parable. This was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a vine press. And in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The second parable that Jesus tells to indict the religious elite and self-righteous has a different cast of characters, but the representations are still fairly similar. The master in this parable is God. The tenants of the house in this parable are the religiously powerful that he is talking to in Matthew chapter 21. The folks that are asking him basically, who do you think you are? The vineyard is the the field of people that these priests and leaders were called to care for. This meant primarily Israel in this particular parable. And the servants in view in this parable are all those who have come throughout history to serve and speak on behalf of the master, a.k.a. God, the prophets of the Old Testament, basically. So those are the characters in the parable. Now, let's unpack the parable. Let's begin with the master's construction. The parable starts with a master who is building a vineyard from scratch. He builds a beautiful vineyard. He builds a safe and guarded vineyard because we see in this construction that there is a construction of a fence around it to protect the vineyard from animals. In addition, the master constructs a tower, which would have not been very large in that day. Some scholars describe it as a hut of leaf-covered wood or possibly stone serving as a lookout and as a shelter. So when it's not a lookout, it would be a shelter for the vine dressers in in the times of inclement weather or in the times of just heat for the harvest. But again, this is intended to represent God's people, chosen, beautiful, guarded, and fruitful. The master constructs a place that is intended to be fruitful. He digs a vine press. And in that press, that's where fresh grapes grow or or go to, to actually be what? Pressed and made into wine. So there is a vineyard with a vine press a wine press, rather. There's a vineyard with a wine press, and there is a tower that is guarding this vineyard, or for lookout, there is a fence around this vineyard. And and, And the wine press isn't intended to be immediately fruitful. It will take some time. It will take years, in fact, before the fruitfulness is finally realized. So what we have... In Jesus' vineyard picture is a beautiful people who are deeply loved and deeply guarded and deeply protected by God and have been given the expectation from God to be fruitful in righteousness and goodness in the world, to be a blessing to the world. This picture is actually a similar picture that we find in Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1, we hear this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And so in painting this picture in Matthew 21, Jesus probably wanted to take the minds of the priests back to Isaiah, where this word picture was also created. It describes a vineyard that wasn't always fruitful, but in Matthew chapter 1, the reason for the source of trouble is not simply the lack of fruitfulness in the people, but the malicious scheming and lack of integrity in those who are charged to lead the people. Those who are charged, to protect the vineyard, those who are charged to bring fruitfulness to the vineyard. And instead they're doing everything in their power to exploit the vineyard and rob the master. This leads us into the latter half of verse 33 and verse 34 where it says, he leased it to the tenants and then he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Leased it to the tenants, went into another country, the master hires tenants and basically charges them to attend to the field as if he was there. Of course, in any good arrangement, there's a negotiated split between the tenants and the owner, but something is not right with the relationship between the master and these particular tenants. And the absence of the master exposes those cracks. See, when leaders start believing they have no one truly watching them, their true colors begin to take shape. How we act when we believe we are no longer in the master's sight is the truest version of us that there really is. And what we come to find in this parable is that tenets are, when the master's not looking, quote unquote, are evil and exploitative. So let's look at the tenets and their treachery in verses 35 and 36. It says, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. It's been said that tenant farmers worked the land for its owners. And those owners were oftentimes absentee landlords. They would leave town, come back, check on things, leave again, you wouldn't see them much said that they paid them as much as half the resulting produce. And so there was an agreement with the tenants that if you work the land, we would give produce from the land. We would make a split of this. However, these tenants do not have a similar arrangement in mind. They are convinced that the most prosperous path for them is to seize what the landowner has given them and treat it like it's their own. And this is the indictment that Jesus is bringing against the religious leaders. He's basically saying that God the Father has trusted you and entrusted to you, rather, a beautiful, protected garden that is intended to be fruitful, that is intended to be a fruitful blessing. And instead of you caring for it, for him in his absence, you are allowing your greed to exploit it for your own selfish gains. Even going as far as destroying any of the master's representatives that he sends back to check on the property and collect on his profits. Despite all of this, though, the master is so unbelievably patient with them. many would even argue that the master is patient to a fault because most people look, would look at the actions of these wicked tenants the first time and say no 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 we're not sending nobody else you, you heard you heard what happened to bob right we're not gonna send jack we have, we still haven't heard from bob since we sent him we're not sending jack too Most people would look at those tenants and say, no, 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 no. They deserve whatever punishment is coming to them. Whatever punishment that you decide to divvy out, they deserve it without any further warning. But this master is unbelievably patient, sending servant after servant to these tenants, only for these tenants to murder servant after servant and still try and hold on to what is not rightfully there. This is the indictment of the priest of Israel. However, don't make the mistake of thinking that it is limited to them. You see, all throughout history, we have seen people take advantage of God's precious and beautiful vineyard, trying to take the resources, trying to exploit the people. All throughout history, we have seen greedy leaders swindling flocks. All throughout history, we have seen manipulative leaders abusing the flock, All throughout history, we have seen lustful leaders sexually exploiting the flock. All throughout history, we have seen power-hungry and glory-craving leaders trying to replace God in the flock by making themselves the center of attention. These are the tenants who get in the vineyard and then act like it belongs to them rather than to the master. So much so that they are willing to even take out the servants that he sends on his behalf. And this leads to the servants. Verse 35 and 36 again. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Notice that these servants are not being beaten, not being killed, not being stoned by robbers and muggers along the way. They're not being beaten, stoned, and killed by people outside of the vineyard. They're being beaten, and stoned, and killed by those charged to tend to it those who are employed by the master to take care of his property in his absence. You know, sometimes, saints, the most vicious treatment a servant of God can suffer will come from those who claim to be doing it in the name of God. doesn't have to come from the outside. We are masters at killing our own, and slaying our wounded. You ever wondered, why would someone do such a thing? You ever wondered, why would we do such a thing? There's a lot of reasons, but one particular reason is because of the power of craving. An insatiable appetite is a powerful and deadly weapon. You see it in the smallest ways, you know. Start with a baby. Baby screams and hollers. Why? Because they want food. That craving leads to that, 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 that anxiousness and that frustration, and they yell and they cry for food. Maybe you move to adults. We act like babies in this regard. Whereas we grow grow increasingly agitated and frustrated when we are what? Hungry. We even have a term for it now, hangry. These are some of the more harmless ways that the craving rears its ugly head to others, but on a more dangerous scale when those cravings extend to power and extend to sex and extend to glory and extend to money and extend to control, and those cravings have not been tempered by the Spirit of God and placed under His subjection and His authority, then they will drive us to do some crazy things, even persecute God's prophets if they get in our way. You see, whenever we are controlled by our insatiable and unchecked cravings and appetites for idols and idolatry, and the prophets stand in the way of those cravings and appetites, it is only a matter of time before we try to take out those prophets. We may mock and slander them, name-call them, lob unfair accusations at them, For example, just think about our current day when someone calls our attention to God's sexual ethics. We will call them what? Antiquated, old-fashioned, out of touch, even bigoted. We'll destroy them because they are standing in the way of our desire for freedom to chase whatever passions we desire. Take, for example, when God raises up a voice to turn our attention towards matters of injustice or greed within his church, then we'll start lobbing Marxists at them. We'll start lobbing woke at them. Why? Because they are standing in the way of our desire to hoard our resources or they are challenging the structures of power that we ourselves are empowered by. And sometimes we would rather keep corruption or corrupt power in place in our lives if it empowers us than critique such power and lose any power of our own. However, we don't just mock and slander these servants that threaten our power, our sex, our glory, our money, or our control. We disqualify them. We nullify them by questioning their integrity when it is above reproach or questioning their credentials and their intellect when we know them to be thoughtful or even questioning their grasp on life when, when they have only demonstrated themselves to be of sound mind. We drown out their voices by ceasing to give them a platform or by, or, or by campaigning for people to stop listening to them. So we mock them, we slander them, we disqualify them, we nullify them, but we eventually destroy or murder or kill them if our appetite for what they are speaking against is too great and the conviction from their voice is too loud. Jesus is highlighting that, the fact that this is all throughout the history of Israel. Isaiah experienced it. Jeremiah experienced it. We call Jeremiah the weeping prophet, not because he was sentimental, but because there was persecution surrounding him. When he warned the people of God's incoming judgment in Jeremiah chapter 20, Scripture says that leaders beat him up and had him locked in stocks in the temple for a day. Not just Jeremiah, there are other prophets. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, when the people were turning away from God, the Lord sent a man by the name of Zechariah to warn them. And he did warn them saying, thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And how did they respond? Chapter 24, uh, verse 21, but they conspired against him. And by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. You see, when they were challenged to turn from their cravings to God and the cravings promised too much satisfaction to turn away from them rather than turn, they chose to silence the ones who were calling them to turn. Fam, for too many of us, God is often treated like a favorite pet. He brings comfort, he brings joy, he even brings a sense of security, as long as he knows his place and stays there. Don't infringe on my affairs, don't infringe on any of my affairs, don't infringe on any of my cravings, don't infringe on any of my appetite, and we won't have any problems. Don't inconvenience me, And we won't have any trouble. But if you start shaking things up too much, then I'll have to get rid of you and find a version of you that will stay in line. This is why we kill the prophets. Because they present God in a way that poses a threat to the idols of our heart. It poses a threat to the cravings of our soul. It poses a threat to the desires and the sins that we hold on to and we treasure. And yet, despite these evil tenants, malicious and violent acts, the patient and merciful master sent more servants, giving the tenants a chance to do right by him before he took action. How patient was God with the leaders, with Israel, but in particular with the leaders as they trampled on his servants that he sent them. As they trampled on Isaiah, as they trampled on Jeremiah, as they trampled on Zechariah. How patient has God been with us when we trampled on his servants that give us hard truth, that rattle our conscience too much. So patient that we get verse 37, if you would look there with me. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. They will respect my son is what the master says. What a tragedy that this master in this story says, there's no way I'll send my son and they'll disrespect him. Surely their greed, surely their malicious behavior, surely their corruptness and their evil and their craving for more will not extend all the way to my very own. But what a tragic statement we read in verse 38 where it says, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Not only do they not have any regard for the son, but they regard him even less because they see what he possesses and they say to themselves, I want that. I want what he has. I want his power. I want his glory. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to people who claim to love and respect God with their lives. But instead, what Jesus is doing in this story is he is peeling back the layers on the heart. He's uncovering the mask. He's uncovering their claim to love God. And he's showing that their claim to love God is really a mirage. It's a ruse that they're using to hide their ambition and they're using to hide their love of self. They love their own glory so much that they are rejecting the son whom God has sent to save them. Not only reject them, but the scripture says, the parable says that they threw him out of the vineyard we can consider this from a couple of different angles. For one, we know that Jesus is telling a story not just about the leaders but, but, and not just about Israel and not just about the prophets and not even, not even just about God the Father, but he is also telling a story about himself and prophesizing about his pending crucifixion, which at the time of this story is just a few days away. And so in one sense, he could be pointing to the reality that he too is preparing to die on the outside when they take him to the outskirts of the city. They walk him up Calvary's Hill where he's murdered. However, there is another angle worth our consideration as we ponder this parable. Killing this master's son in the vineyard would have polluted the vineyard. This is what what one theologian says. He says, if they had shed his blood in the vineyard, it would have become an unclean area and they would have problems in disposing of their produce. This would be so even if, this would be so even if they killed him in the vineyard without actually shedding blood and they carried him out. So they got him outside the vineyard first and then they killed him, end quote. Now think about that. The value of the vineyard was so prominent in their minds that they were more mindful to take special care to protect the vineyard but no care at all to protect the son. Could Jesus be using this as an opportunity to point to the religious leaders and to point to our commitment to protecting our and their source of power and profit while showing little regard for the son of God. Treating the vineyard more sacred than the actual creator and owner of the vineyard. It's a tragic story and then then it takes a turn towards hope in verse 40. We gotta find the hope, doesn't sound very hopeful at first. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read that he was speaking about them. Jesus turns the story back on them. After telling the story, he says, what should a master do when his tenants exploit his vineyard for their own glory, their own power, their own profit, their own greedy consumption? What should a master do when the tenants beat and stone and kill all the servants that he has sent to collect on his behalf. What should a master do? When he sends his own son to try and reason with their insatiable appetites, and then they reject him and murder him on the outside of the vineyard. They know what he should do. So they answer the question for him. Tell you what he should do, he should take those wretches and deal with them, you know, give them a miserable death and, 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 and then go and find some people that's going to do right in his vineyard. They answer the question rightly. And in answering the question rightly, they are answering the question about themselves rightly. But here's also what's happening. They are slowly beginning to understand that he is talking about them. So in answering the question, what should the master do with these tenants, they are actually answering the question, what should the Lord do with us? And saints of God, we are not better off than these leaders. We too have closed our ears to the messengers God has sent us in our lives. When they encourage us to turn our hearts and our affections to Jesus, we deny them. When they told us to repent of our worship of lesser things and our worship of self, we tried to close our ears to their volume or close our ears to their cries. And God has sent messenger after messenger after messenger as an example of his inexhaustible grace and inexhaustible patience towards us only to be rejected by us over and over and over again. So to solve our problem, our sin problem, God sent his own son. And his son is the full embodiment of his grace. His son is the full embodiment uh, embodiment of his love. His son is the full embodiment of his patience. There is nothing or no one else that God can send to save us from our dilemma because in sending his son, he has sent us the very best gift in the full embodiment of himself to us. That's why he tells us, or that's why he's telling the leaders that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them. Why? Because they rejected the son. That's the final offer. There is no other offer for salvation. He has given his very best. He has given his very self to them, and they slayed him. He's given his very self, and they murdered him. They rejected him. And so they rejected the final offer. And so he says, if you reject reject me and the kingdom of God is taken from you. But here is the goodness that I mentioned. Verse 42 again, he says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He says, if you reject the, the final offer that I have for you, then the kingdom of God will be taken away. Eternal life will be taken away. There's only eternal damnation and eternal suffering for you. You're thrown out of the vineyard, you're thrown out of the kingdom. But he mentions this, this verse from Psalm. He talks about the stone that the builders rejected. It's a beautiful picture as you think about it, right? Remember, this valueless son is tossed on the outside of the city, murdered and tossed and thrown aside onto the trash heap, rejected. And this stone that the builders have rejected. It's the ideal of, you know, the builders getting ready, to prepare, or getting ready to prepare a building or construct a building. And as they prepare to construct this building, they're pulling out all of their materials to see, you know, how, you know, what's going to be useful for the construction of the foundation and everything that connects to that foundation. And they have this stone, and they say to themselves, this stone doesn't appear to be useful. And so then they toss it to the side to the outskirts. But then there's someone who's a lot wiser, someone who's a lot smarter, someone who's a lot more brilliant, a master builder who comes along. And that master builder says, what are y'all doing? This is the best stone in the heap. This stone is the stone that's going to connect the foundation and hold the foundation together. The whole house is gonna stand on this stone. You're tossing the stone, but this is the stone we need to pull it all together. And so the throwaway stone, the stone murdered on the outside of the vineyard and the the outside of the city, and, and the stone that was murdered on the hill of Calvary, the stone that was so worthless that they had to move him out because they considered the cleanliness of the vineyard and the city more precious than the embrace of that stone, that stone. That's the stone that God has taken and made the very foundation of his construction. The stone that the men throw away has become the stone that holds the entire kingdom of God together. The stone that men throw away has now become the stone that has brought salvation to everyone who embraces that stone. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that the leaders of this group, these religious leaders that he's talking about, you may reject me. And if you reject me, you're going to be on the outside of the kingdom. The kingdom will be taken away. But it will be taken away and given to everyone who embraces the son. Because here's the beauty about this story. That son, yes, he was murdered. And he was murdered by the tenants. But where this story ends, there's another story that picks up because that son that was murdered rose again. Rose again in three days with all power and all authority in his hands. And all those who embrace the one who was murdered but resurrected from the grave will be given the kingdom, will receive eternal life, will receive all that their heart craves but doesn't know what it craves. We'll receive the joy that the heart is looking for. We'll receive the peace that the heart is looking for. We'll receive the goodness that the heart is looking for if they embrace stone. It is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. God, we love you so much.